Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself. And for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hello, dear listener, and welcome back to Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast with me, your host and author, Caroline Foran. It is now time for a deep dive into one of my favourite all-time subjects, self-compassion. Yes, I've talked about it a lot before and I do so often, but this time we're hearing from the queen of self-compassion, the TED-talking, world-renowned Dr. Kristen Neff, who was one of the first researchers to operationally define self-compassion and be able to measure it. It has become one of my most valuable tools for down-regulating my stress response whenever it flares up, and I really hope that after listening to this episode, it'll be the same for you. Don't take my word for it though, let Kristen win you over with the science. Thanks for listening, thanks for supporting, and if you like this episode, please do share it with a friend who might find it beneficial, or tip the series over on www.patreon.com forward slash Caroline Foran, and you can also do a one-time supporter tip via the supporter button on Acast. Now, let's hear from this absolute wonder woman. Dr. Kristen Neff, thank you so, so much for joining me on Owning It, the Anxiety Podcast, all the way from America. We're over Zoom right now. Uh, we're in the middle of the pandemic, so we can't be in person. Um, so, and I really appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. Thank you so much for joining. Oh, you're welcome. Happy to be here. Looking at your, your resume, I suppose, online, there, there's so many different strings to your bow. You're an associate professor of educational psychology at the University of Texas. Is that right? Yes, that's yeah. right. You're an international best-selling author, you're a TED Talker, and you're the co-founder of the Center for Mindful Self- Self-Compassion. Have I got everything right there? Yes, keeps me busy. <laughs> how, would you, how would you describe what you do? You know, uh, my, my focus is on self-compassion, both in terms of researching it uh, and in terms of um, developing uh, protocols to teach it and also teaching it. So really, it's, in some ways, it's three strings to my bow. Um, so I, I started researching the, the construct back in almost 20 years ago, actually. Wow. Um, and I developed a scale to measure it and kind of started, you know, so I didn't come up with the idea of self-compassion, but I was one of the first to kind of operationalize it and create a scale to measure it over 20 years ago. And so I still do a lot of research um, on self-compassion. And, but for about the past 10 years, um, with my colleague, Chris Germer, 
we've developed the Mindful Self-Compassion Program, which is um, an, an actual training program to teach self-compassion skills. And we created a nonprofit center. Um, and so the, the program's hot all over the world right now. Um, you know, there's, there's thousands of teachers. Uh, and so what we're doing now is we're like adapting the program. So it's an, an eight-week, two-and-a-half-hour-a-week program. Um, but we're adapting it so we're teaching like um, a six-hour program for healthcare workers who are really busy or for teachers or for, for various populations. Um, so, that, so that's really exciting. So, I'm, so, you know, it's not only running the nonprofit and developing the protocol and the adaptations, but also I do a lot of teaching. <laughs> wow, okay. It's all moved online now, so it's a little easier, but I, was, I used to be on planes a lot. <laughs> Oh my God, I can only imagine. Well, for me, what is just so interesting is, I guess what you've described there is that you took something that has been around for, you know, ever, the idea of being kind to ourselves and self-compassion, and you put it through the lens of science and you were able to measure it. And for me, that is just makes something so much more interesting when you can actually see the impact that something like this could have on a person's experience of life. Um, and I have to say, wh when I was watching your, your TED talk and your other videos about self-compassion, um, which to be honest is relatively new to me, like I, I, I would never have described myself as a self-compassionate person before and I wouldn't have given enough weight to it either. I probably would have rolled my eyes at the idea of it until I came across your work. And when you talk about the neuroscience of self-compassion and how it you know, it, it's not just a nice idea, but how it positively, positively impacts on our cortisol levels, um, which as someone who has struggled with anxiety, you know, that's the goal when it comes to managing anxiety is to bring down those cortisol levels. So that was just a major eye opener for me. Was it, was it the same for you to, to realize that? Yeah, well, so I, I was a believer in self-compassion ever start since I started practicing it, right? So even before I studied it scientifically, I had learned about it actually in a, a Buddhist meditation course um, and I just saw the immediate effect it had on my life. So that was kind of my first empirical evidence. But I have been really um, kind of pleasantly surprised by the, the large body of research supporting it. There's over 2,500 studies now. Um, and so, you know, these are studies done all sorts of ways, whether it's, you know, with the scale or by putting people in a self-compassionate mood or by um, teaching them self-compassion, or, you know, there's lots of ways we look at it now. Uh, it's really pretty impressive. Actually, I'm just, I'm just working on a, a study now. I'm like one of the last authors, so I'm not highly involved, but just now looking at, at soothing touch um, as a way to reduce anxiety, and we found that it did reduce cortisol levels, and that's just a simple process of, you know, putting your hand on your body in a soothing, supportive way. Um, and there's also brain research coming out now, fMRI studies, and it's, it's just really exploding. It's very exciting. Yeah, I think for me, like to, to explain where my um, reticence would have come from, I suppose, is that what my anxiety, when I started suffering with it, um, it came on very suddenly and it was very physical and very acute and I was really suffering and I wasn't able to leave my house. And I think when you're in that bad state, you just want something really tangible that you can put your finger on and say, oh, do this and it will help cure it or help get rid of it, which obviously is not the case. It's not, it's not, it's not going to work. So to think about something like being kind to yourself, obviously now I'm fully aware of the power of that. But I think a lot of people still might think of it as just a nice idea and be, you know, un unless they've been directed to your work, your amazing work, they might really understand the significance of, of self-compassion when it comes to our actual biological experience of something like anxiety. 
Yes, yeah. So, so self-compassion is rooted in the physiological caregiving system. Um, uh, Paul Gilbert from the UK has done brilliant work on this. I mean, that's kind of his whole model is the fact that, you know, normally we react to threats in the environment with the threat defense system. Things like anxiety is a fear response. You know, and it's a, it's a very, it's a good response to have. If yeah. a lion starts chasing you, you want to be primed and ready to run like hell, you know. Um, but the problem is, is we just kind of overuse that system. So anytime we feel badly about ourselves or we feel uncertain or something uh, kind of a little uh, difficult happens, often that's our go-to response. And there are biological differences in how people's brains are wired and how quickly they tend to go to the fight, flight, or free, uh, freeze response, you know? And, and so, so my son's autistic and part of autism is, is having an anxiety disorder. So I, I really, you know, seeing very much that just the physiological nature, the, the brain-based nature of his anxiety. It's not like because of his personality type, it's just how his brain is wired. Um, yeah. So, so, but the good thing is, is although we, we have this fight or flight response, we also do have a, a care response as part of our physiology. You know, it's our inheritance as mammals, um, and, and especially among human mammals, because human mammals are born the most immature. I mean, it takes us longer than any other animal to reach full maturity. About, they're thinking about 30 years until the prefrontal cortex finishes developing. Wow. So we had to have a very strong system in place, which is the care system, or sometimes it's called the attachment system, where it would make us, um, when we're with um, other, other humans, or our parents especially, we feel safe, we feel calmed, we feel relaxed. And the care system, you know, does things like releases um, as related to oxytocin yes. and opioids and kind of, you know, what they call the, the parasympathetic nervous response, which is kind of the calming, safe, soothing response. And so they're really just two different forms of wanting to be safe. And it's not even that one's better than the other. You know, in some circumstances, you want, you want the fight or flight response, but it's just we overuse it. And so this is another way of feeling safe is by caring for ourselves, you know, letting letting ourselves know that we have our own back. We're committed to helping ourselves. We have our own support, encouragement, kindness. Um, and when you do that, including with things like physical touch, it actually does activate this this caring system, this attachment system. That's another way to make us feel safe, and that's why it's so powerful for anxiety. Yeah, I, for me, just observing, I suppose, my own experience and people around me, it. it would I be correct in saying there is a tendency as we grow older, as we become adults to, to maybe socially or culturally move away from that care system? And we tend a lot toward, more towards self-criticism, which you say we think we, we do because it will be more self-motivating, but actually it has a complete opposite impact on our anxiety. And I think when, like in anyone who I've spoken to about their anxiety and myself included, the first thing, the first reaction to it is oh my god why do I have to be this way why can't I just not be this way like get over it this is ridiculous you need you know people are worse off than you and we just go straight into that self-criticism mode and and would, would I be right in saying that that triggers this the flight or fight response even more yeah so um basically so it, it really starts in adolescence when we start becoming more self-reflective and we start being able to compare what is compared to how we like it to be and so in some ways it's a cognitive advance you know in a, in yeah. a way that we can, we can kind of um compare how we are to how we'd like to be um but yeah it, it causes uh, it causes a lot of suffering 
Um, and by the way, so self-compassion doesn't mean that you don't see like a better way to do things yeah. or you don't see when your behavior is unhealthy or you don't have high standards for yourself. All of those, of course you do. But the reason, the, the difference is instead of thinking you're inadequate or unworthy if you aren't perfect, right? Beating yourself up because you have an anxiety disorder, for instance, it's like, okay, you know, this is how I am. I have an anxiety disorder. Or I, I have this challenge. Um, can I, can I love myself unconditionally? Can I accept myself unconditionally? But just like, like, so for instance, my son, right? I love him absolutely unconditionally. But when he, when he gets, when he's having trouble in school, I just, I don't leave it as I love you, darling. I try yeah. to help him, you know, cause I want him to, I want him to do well. I want him to, you know, graduate and reach his full potential. So actually love is a motivating force as well for change. Um, but, but it's a much more, it's a much more stable motivating force because it's kind of unconditional, right? Yeah. Um, it makes us feel safe and that safety reduces our anxiety. I mean, as you know, I don't need to tell you this. One of the um, really tragedies about people thinking that self-criticism is the only option they have is that actually, it's like pulling the rug out from underneath yourself because you feel anxious about succeeding because you know if you fail, you're going to really you know, slam yourself with self-criticism. And that performance anxiety actually undermines your ability to do your best. It leads to things like procrastination, right? Or maybe just giving up. Yeah. Um, and some people, some people that do manage to use self-criticism as a motivator. I, I had someone once say it was great. She said, it's like, it's like a, um, an old coal powered locomotive. It gets you up the hill, but it blows out a lot of dark smoke. You know? <laughs> it's like, it kind of works, but it has all these unnecessary consequences like fear of failure and anxiety. Um, and so when you start motivating yourself from a place of care, just because you care about yourself, you know, you encourage yourself with warmth, support. Um, what it does is, first of all, um, it allows you to learn from your failure because instead of being freaked out and saying, oh, no, I'm a failure, it's like, okay, this, this happened. Well, how can I do better next time? Um, it encourages a growth mindset, which is the ability to, you know, again, see how we can learn and grow from our experiences as opposed to just judging ourselves as, as flawed human beings. Um, so it, it's really, um, it's much more productive in terms of motivating ourselves, um, sticking to our goals, um, and eventually achieving them. Yeah, absolutely. But it seems like, is, it, would it be human nature, it would be easier for us to tend towards self-criticism than it is? Like, is, is self-criticism easier than self-compassion? Well, it's not easier, it's just more ritual, right? Why is that? Well, I think part of that is evolutionarily, right? So even reptiles have a threat defense response. It's like really deeply encoded into our nervous system. Um, and like I said, I, you know, I'm not an expert in physiology, but there, we know that there are, you know, biological differences in people's nervous, how they're wired, how the nervous system is wired. So I think pretty much for mo for everyone, the threat defense system is most, more quickly easy, more quickly triggered. It kind of has to be. Yeah. This is like the absolute, I better run or die response. Uh, the, the care response is a little slower. Um, it also partly depends. So there are some biological differences. There are also a lot of differences based on, uh, you know, our early childhood upbringing. For people who had warm, supportive parents or, you know, very securely attached to them, they always met their needs. It kind of, that feeling of safety coming from care is, it, is more habitual than people you know, whose parents maybe were neglectful or even abusive, then, it, then actually in that case, the care system can actually be 
can trigger anxiety. Because if your parents made you feel frightened, then the signals of care can lead to anxiety, right? Um, We actually call that a backdraft. It's like the system is supposed to um, make, you know, so, so for instance, backdraft is the idea that for, for some of us, especially if our early childhood, you know, was, was kind of traumatic, we had to close the door of our hearts very early on just in order to survive, right? We just, we just couldn't go there. It was too painful. And then, so later on, when you start to open the door of your heart, it's kind of like a, a building's on the building that's on fire. And if you fling open the doors of that building, the fresh air rushes in and the flames rush out. Yes. You know, and, and that can actually happen to us as well. Um, the good news is, is it can be worked with. Uh, it actually is a good sign for, for people with trauma history, histories, for instance. It's a good sign if giving themselves care makes them feel anxious <laughs> because it means they're starting to open the door of their heart a little bit. Okay. But what it does mean is you need to go more slowly. You need to have a lot of compassion for yourself because of the anxiety, you know, because of your own history. Um, you need to maybe think, okay, well, maybe putting my hand on my heart is too much, it's too activating. So maybe I'll have a cup of tea. I'll find some other way of caring for myself. Yeah. Right? The idea is you're building the intention to care for yourself when you're struggling. It, doesn't, it almost doesn't matter how you do that, you know? Yeah. And then by building that habit, then it starts to feel more safe and more comfortable over time. And so, for instance, people with trauma histories, self-compassion is a really useful way to kind of repair those old wounds. It's kind of like we're reparenting ourselves. Maybe our parents didn't meet our needs consistently, but we can learn to meet our own needs consistently. And, you know, we can change yeah. our habitual patterns. It takes time and it helps have a really good therapist and all that. It takes work. It definitely takes time. Yes. But, but it can be done. That's the good news. Yes. Do you think um, that aside from anyone's background or upbringing, do you think that a lack of self-compassion in someone's life in and of itself could be an anxiety trigger or a driver of anxiety? Right. Well, so it certainly is a contributor, right? So there's a lot of things that contribute to anxiety. But um, so if you don't have that capacity to help yourself feel calm and safe through your own warmth and care, well, first of all, that's a, a resource you don't you don't have right and so so self-compassion it means like it's 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 both things it's the existence of warmth and care and it's the absence of the harsh self-criticism and like and so so in my model there's there's three forms of uncompassionate behavior it's self-criticism um but also tendency to feel isolated when when mm-hmm. things are difficult like you know the, i'm the only one who's flawed or i'm the only one who's experiencing this that tendency to cut yourself off from others, you know, and also shame's often often involved in that. That's yeah. the way we're uncompassionate. And also, the third thing is when we kind of uh, over-identify with our difficult emotions, when we get lost in them, when we don't have any space around them, right? Yeah. And so, so, so people, um, yeah, who don't have the the, the resources of the warmth and and the, uh, the feelings of common humanity and the mindfulness. And they, they're, more, they're more habitually um, critical, isolated, and over-identified with their emotions. Um, yeah, it definitely contributes to anxiety. Um, well, yeah. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. 
$45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Well, it, it just makes, it makes so much sense to me, and I just wish this is something that I had become aware of way back when, um, when I just thought the only route was to be really critical and, you know, I just snapped myself out of it. And really I was, I was kind of driving myself further into it. Make, making it worse. Yeah. I'd love to ask you to explain, if you don't mind, the three components of self-compassion that you talk about. Um, so it's, it, I mean, I just want people to know it's not as simple as just, just be nicer to yourself. There's, there's a bit more depth to it than that. Yeah. And so, so kindness is kind of the easy way to think about it, but there are actually three other, I'm sorry, two other components that, yeah. that are really important. And so actually the first is mindfulness. Um, and so, and, and that, that's somewhat unique to my definition. Um, but I think and that, that may be because I learned about self-compassion when I was learning mindfulness, but mindfulness is really key because we have to be able to turn toward our difficult emotions in order to respond with kindness. Yeah. So if we shove them down, if we ignore them, if we just like buck up, you know, and just don't think about it, or um, so if we, if we suppress our difficult emotions, our negative emotions, we can't give ourselves kindness. It's like if a friend never tells you they're having trouble, you can't give your friend kindness, right? Exactly. You need to know that they're, they're, they're suffering. And so we, we can't avoid it and repress it. Um, at the same time, you know, what I talked about before, this over-identification, sometimes, yeah, we may know we're suffering, but, but not really because we're just lost in it. Like there's no perspective. There's no, there's no sense of self left over to say, wow, I'm really struggling. It's like, it's just like, oh my God, you know, we're freaking out. To use a non-scientific term, when we're freaking out, we're lost in our difficult emotions. There's no perspective yeah. to say, hey, you're having a really hard time. And so that's where the mindfulness comes in. So mindfulness is kind of a balanced state of awareness where we aren't suppressing or we aren't avoiding, we're really opening to what is, but we've got some space with it. We've got some perspective on it. Um, and so that's really, in some ways, the first step of self-compassion, just noticing, hey, I'm feeling anxious or, hey, I'm feeling sad or, hey, I'm feeling whatever the difficult emotion is, bringing awareness to it in a kind of balanced way. Okay. And then you have co common humanity. Yes. And then, um, and then, so, you know, what's the difference between self-compassion and self-pity? This is a really important question because we know that self-pity is not healthy. So self-pity is woe is me, poor me. It's a very self-focused emotion, right? 
And so even though the word self is in the, the term self-compassion, um, ironically, self-compassion isn't self-focused because um, compassion is an inherently connected emotion. So, okay. so, so what's the difference between pity and compassion? Pity is poor you, you, I feel sorry for you, you're separate from me, I'm looking down on you. Compassion is, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Right? We're, we're all human beings. We're all vulnerable. We're kind of all in this together. And so with self-compassion, um, the idea is that, that there's a recognition of the humanity of imperfection, right? Everyone is imperfect. Everyone makes mistakes. Everyone lives an imperfect life. Everyone, you know, grows old and eventually dies. Everyone encounters difficulty. This is a human experience. Right? And so, yes, there are differences in levels of suffering, for sure, and the sources of suffering are different. The fact that as human beings we suffer is kind of what defines us as being human. Um, yes. And so when we frame our, our struggles and our difficulty in light of that kind of wisdom, that reality, that we aren't separate, that we aren't alone, this is part of the shared human experience, what that does is, again, it gives us perspective. It means we feel less isolated and alone in our struggles. Um, you know, we don't go into the rabbit hole of self-pity, woe is me. It's just like, okay, well, you know, whoever said I was supposed to be perfect? Whoever okay. said that this difficulty wasn't supposed to be happening? You know, it's not like we all signed a contract before being born <laughs> you know, for the perfect plan and I want my money back when it doesn't happen that way. Um, and so these, these three components are really necessary. So the mindfulness, kind of being able to turn toward and, and be with our pain in, in a way that has some space around it and perspective. I'm remembering that we aren't alone. This is part of being human. Everyone struggles. And then, and then the kindness, right? Then the warmth and the care and support. And, and so from my point of view, you really need all three in order for it to be stable. So okay. they tend to go together. My research, so if you train in, so this research showing that if you train in any one of these aspects they tend to increase the other yeah they kind of form a system okay good to know um before we, we talk about how to maybe introduce more self-compassion into our lives it's really interesting to know where someone stands with you know how how self-compassionate am i right now to begin with and so that's you've developed a model to kind of get ascertain that is that right yeah so uh, way way back when in 2003 i published a self the self-compassion scale um, which actually just measures uh, the degree to which people are, are, are kind or self-critical or feel common humanity or feel isolated and are mindful versus over-identified. Over and if you go to my website, which is selfcompassion.org, you can Google it, spell it any way you'll find me. Um, you can take the, the scale on my website and it'll print out for you your scores included on all the subscales and give you a sense of if you're high or low or average in self-compassion. Amazing. Okay. And then in terms of, I suppose, my, I'd love to tell you about my experience of self-compassion. Um, it's it's relatively new, but I, I feel like this year has been the year that I have I have worked on it immensely. I'm in my seventh month of pregnancy now, and I have, I've always tended towards being very hard on myself and an overachiever and a people pleaser and everything. And since I read and watched your work, um, I have been just, you know, obviously convinced about, you know, it's more than just, oh, you know, oh, just, tell yourself you're nice and you're fine and you're okay and I've really invested in it and for me the first time I really noticed the impact of it was I, I um 
I've so I had a panic attack a couple of months ago actually just a couple of weeks ago really it was my first time going out since I had been pregnant because I was very sick I had really bad morning sickness and I we went out and it was my first time being out we were at a gig and there was a lot of people there and it was actually just before the pandemic really broke out so I think I probably already felt a bit unnerved about being in a crowd and I just felt I felt claustrophobic I felt like I didn't want to be there and once I got it into my head I just felt the panic rise in my body and before but any time before that if I ever had had any kind of panic experience like that or any panic attack what would have been worse than the panic attack itself would have been the aftermath where I would tear myself apart and be like oh my god you've gone backwards have you learned nothing or like why can't you cope in this environment you need to stay here and prove that you can you know what how, how can you be writing these books and doing these podcasts helping other people if you can't figure this out for yourself and I would have it would have just made it so much worse whereas this time I think from everything that I've been doing and, and practicing and reading, I just, I acknowledged. So I, I, I mindfully leaned into the di- the discomfort while I was there. And I said to myself, you know, I, I don't feel good in this environment right now. Um, Actually, the best thing for me to do would be to remove myself and, and go home. And that doesn't have to mean that I'm weak or that I've gone backwards or that I'm failing. And I just sort of said to my, I just said to my husband, listen, I, I want you to stay and have a good time, but I'm just going to check out of this. Don't worry about me, but I just, I, this is what I want to do for myself. And I went home and I expected to be, you know, berate myself for it. And I just had a cup of tea and I got into bed and I read my book and I just was like, no, you did the right thing. Like, actually that was quite strong and shows how far you've come that you just said, you know what? I don't have to be a certain kind of person to prove that I that anxiety doesn't have a hold over me sometimes I sometimes anxiety does create these feelings in me and it's okay and the minute I sort of had that chat with myself um from the next day on I was I just bounced back to normal I was completely fine and I just couldn't get over the difference Uh, the only difference there was was that I had a self-compassionate approach towards like a a self-compassionate response to the panic attack which I never had had before Yes, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. And, you know, and the way you can even strengthen that. And so it's, it's very, you know, what you did was wonderful and you, you took care of yourself and you made a decision that, that met your needs and you didn't beat yourself up and you accepted yourself. But you can even do it more um, in the moment. So when you're having the anxiety arise, you could try putting your hands on your heart and yeah. saying, you know, I'm so sorry. This is so hard, darling, or whatever, whatever you call yourself, you know, you don't have to be Carolyn. I, I call myself, I kind of, I call myself terms of endearment, but you can call yourself Carolyn or nothing. Because I'm so sorry. This is so hard. Putting your hands on your heart and, and speaking to yourself, just like you would speak to a friend. If you were with a close friend who was in your presence, having a panic attack, you'd probably hold their hand probably say oh I'm so sorry sweetheart or whatever you would say to your good friend you know and you'd be warm and you'd be supportive you say I'm here for you it's going to be okay right and so if you if you add that level of warmth and support and kindness it will even it will uh you'll be amazed by the difference it makes especially in the moment of panic attack yeah and is that is that how you would um I suppose describe how to bring more self-compassion into your life by talking to yourself as if you would a friend that you care a lot about would that be the kind of the starting point that's the easiest way to think about where to start is um is as what what would you what would I say to a good friend or a loved one in this situation who was going through the exact same same thing I was going through because most of us already know like what to say and how to say it the tone of voice to use so we just have to give ourselves permission to do it with ourselves. So you can think, what would I say to a friend? Um, like I said, phys- physical touch is, is, you shouldn't underestimate it because as human beings, the first two years of life, 
the primary way parents and infants communicate care is through touch because babies don't have language. Yeah. So, our, so our bodies are exquisitely designed to experience touch as a signal of care. So in, and like I said, we just, we just, we're just working on this study. We're showing that self-soothing touch can actually lower your cortisol levels. So, and, and people are different. Some people find hand on the heart work, sometimes on your throat or your belly, your face, or, you know, you kind of have to experiment what works for you. And, and I suppose that's probably why a lot of different like um, therapies like massage and everything work because they're, what they all have in common is that um, reassurance that brings down the cortisol level. Yes, but you can't get a massage when you're in the midst of a panic attack. No. <laughs> Quite literally can. I mean, so I used to do this when my son would have these horrible tantrums in public, you know, and it was just so overwhelming. And I would just put my, you know, sometimes if I was in public, I'd be a little more subtle. Like I'd like hold my own, own hand. Sometimes, it, you know, it looks a little funny to put your hand on your heart, but I would definitely do it the moment I had some privacy. Um, because in a way, sometimes your head can't go there because your head is too full of the storyline of how awful you are or how awful the situation is. So you can actually start with the physiology. You yeah. can actually start by, you know, and so soothing touch is good. Also things like grounding your feet into the floor, feeling the, the soles of your feet and the connection to the earth and like grounding yourself physically, adding some warmth through supportive touch and like start with your body and then, then it actually makes it easier for you to start talking to yourself like a good friend. Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of access points, but, I, but yeah. it's all important. You're incredibly aware of the importance of um, self-compassion, but do you think it's something that once you understand it, it's always there? Or is it something we need to work on all the time? And do you need to remind yourself of it as well? Well, it's interesting. Yeah, I, I do. I mean, I, so I'm not, I'm not self-critical now. And so I'm, I'm generally compassionate, but sometimes um, I, I do have to go through the steps. Like for instance, I'll, I'll be feeling distressed or stressed. Um, and then I'll have to kind of remember, oh yeah, that's right. Okay. So for me, I, I really work with my, my emotional discomfort um, as a physical sensation. Mm -hmm. So I find it's, it's more helpful. It's easier for me than working through the storyline. I mean, I also work through the storyline, but I'll say, okay, where do I feel that in my body? Oh, I see. Yeah, I feel that tension. It's like a, it's like a knot in my gut. So, okay, that's right. You know, remember self-compassion. So, so I'll put my hand on my gut where I'm feeling it, and I'll just kind of, you know, consciously send myself some warmth and kindness, and just remembering that this is normal. You know, everyone feels this way sometimes, and so it is. It's definitely habitual to me, but it, it helps when I remember it, because they're kind of explicit. These are. The three components of self-compassion are kind of like three steps you can do. And sometimes you have to remember to do them. Okay, yeah. mindful of where, what am I feeling and where do I feel it? You know, we consciously bringing in the wisdom of common humanity because it's so easy to forget. And then consciously giving ourselves kindness and, and support. And that's through language with ourselves and touch. Language and touch and also tone of voice and kind of just kind of your body posture toward yourself. It's kind of being... Um, more soft. Oh, and by the way, I should also say self-compassion isn't always soft. So there's a soft side of self-compassion, which is really good for things like um, some threat coming from the inside, like a panic attack. Yeah. Uh, but sometimes self-compassion needs to be fierce, right? So for instance, when people are encroaching on our boundaries, right, or they aren't respecting us, mm -hmm. sometimes to be self-compassionate, we need to say, no, 
that's not okay, right? We have to be kind of really quite fierce. Uh, I call that fierce self-compassion. Uh, and so that's when we need to protect ourselves or, or sometimes to motivate ourselves. We need a little fierceness, some tough love. It's not, it's, not, it's not cruel love. It's not harsh, but it's like, hey, listen, this is really harming you. I care about you. You know, so like with our kids, we need to say, I'm sorry, you need to do something different, but it's because I love you, not because you're inadequate. Okay. And so I call that kind of fierce and tender self-compassion. And sometimes we need to ask ourselves, well, what type of compassion do I need? Do I need, do I need mother or do I need mama bear? You know, <laughs> fierce mama bear energy sometimes is exactly what we need to care for ourselves. Okay. And I suppose that leads me to what my next question was, what do you think people most get wrong about self-compassion? So obviously we think it's just super soft. We think it's pity. Yeah, I think people think it's, there's actually five main myths about self-compassion and it's great because we've got research showing that they're all completely wrong it's all, it's all exactly the opposite of what we're afraid of people think it's self-pity it actually it makes us more connected to others um, it makes us less self-focused people think it's selfish again it actually makes us more able to give to others and to sustain giving to others without burning out um, people think um, it's self-indulgent, that it means just, you know, doing nice things for yourself, like eating cupcakes and taking bubble baths, you know. <laughs> no, no, self-compassion means we take care of ourselves. We go to the doctor, we practice safe sex, you know, we, we, we eat well because we care. Um, people are uh, afraid it's, um, oh, the other big one is that it's going to undermine our, our motivation, right? That mm. it's going to um, make us become passive and amotivated just the opposite. It makes us more motivated. It helps us stick to it. And then the final big one is um, people think it's going to make us weak, right? Because it's soft. They think not, my self-criticism makes me tough. It makes me strong. It does not. So for instance, we have lots of research on combat veterans and those combat veterans who can be kind and supportive to themselves in dealing with the aftermath of the incredible trauma they've seen overseas, right? There are, are less likely develop, to develop post-traumatic stress syndrome than those soldiers who are just hard on themselves or, you know, you know shame themselves because of what they, what they did or what, what they experienced or they're just really cold to themselves. So, I mean, if you think of life as a battle, and, and in some ways it is, when you go into battle, what's going to make you stronger? If you're an ally, if you have your own back, mm -hmm. or if you're an enemy and you cut yourself down, clearly being an enemy to yourself, cutting yourself down, weakens you. It does not strengthen you. you and know, just and people put that completely wrong. It's yeah. So I find I get very frustrated when I see people talk about maybe, well, I'm, I'm nearly 32, so I don't know if I count as a millennial, but talking about our generation of, of people who are more self-aware and practice more self-care as being snowflake generation, does that frustrate you? Because that's just reinforcing the idea that self-compassion is just a, you know, like you say, a cupcake and a bubble bath? Uh, yeah, because it frustrates me because self-compassion is one of the most useful powerful, effective, and handy because you don't have to see anyone to get it. Coping <laughs> yeah. and resources we have available to us. It's like we have this superpower right in our own back pocket and we just don't use it because a lot of because a lot of us have myths about what it means or what it does. And you know, and it, it takes there are things, you know, there is things like self-pity and self-indulgence and selfishness. All those things do exist. But self-compassion is not those things. And so, but you don't really know that until you try it out. Or if you read the research, you can go to my website and look at like the thousands of studies, you know, showing that it's not, it ain't so. 
you know yeah that's amazing and so just in terms of the research and the studies you've been able to see firsthand that introducing self-compassion into your life over a period of time whether it's it's how we speak to ourselves or touch you've been able to see a decrease in someone's experience of anxiety is that right Oh yeah, there's there's lots of research. Um, and again, um, so so one one of the common ways they um, test anxiety is what's called the Trier social stress test. They make you give a a, <laughs> a talk in front of three judges who are completely expressionless and just stare at you with a blank face. Oh, wow. Incredibly stressful and anxiety provoking. And so, like if if you prime people ahead of time to be self compassionate about the experience, they get less anxious. And so this is not only in subjective reports of how anxious people are, but also in physiological markers like, um, you know, uh, cortisol levels. Um, and so, for instance, our mindful self-compassion training program um, and also shorter programs, it definitely reduces anxiety. Um, and one study, we followed people up for a year and, and they had no um, gains in anxiety. They didn't lose any of their self-compassion skills. So there's a lot of research showing that it works. Wow. And I think, I mean, what, what I always find very important to, to mention is that none of these things we talk about are ever about getting rid of anxiety, but help you react better to it. Because obviously anxiety is going to rise up. Obviously that threat system is going to be triggered at some point and that's very healthy and very normal. It's not about having a life where you don't have any anxious response ever, but self-compassion helps you to experience it in a way that's not, I guess, negatively impacting your day-to-day life. And so, so one good metaphor is that we were able to hold it with kindness. We're actually able to hold it with love, you know. So when you're feeling anxiety, you can say, "Oh man, that this is really hard," you know. Oh, you know. Yeah. Okay. Well, it's here. You know. Hopefully, it will pass. But until it does, I'm here for myself. You know, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be warm. I'm going to be supportive. I'm going to be caring. I'm going to do whatever I can to help myself. Um, which you know, and I may my options may be limited. But, you know, it's just that intention to care for yourself as opposed to judging yourself, shaming yourself. Oh, there I go. I'm broken. Right. One of the terms we have um, for self-compassion is, is that the goal of practice is simply to become a compassionate mess. <laughs> you'll still be a mess. You'll still have your panic attacks. You'll still have whatever it is you've, you've got going on. You know, things, things will get better, but you, know, you will still be a mess because you're a human being. Yeah. Right? But if your goal is just to be to hold that mess with compassion, you know, yes. that's something. That's something. You know, what? and that compassion will actually allow you to function as opposed to being a, a dysfunctional mess, you'll be a functional mess and you'll be a kind mess. And then when you're self-compassionate, then every single person who interacts with you will be interacting with someone who's compassionate and um, kind on the inside as opposed to someone who's beating themselves up and stressed and angry. So, so I guess the impact of self-compassion, if we were to talk about it outside of anxiety, it's not just going to like improve your situation inwardly, but it actually has a lot more, it, like it casts its net quite wide in terms of like your experience with other people improves, maybe your relationships improve your, would you say that self-compassion, it would improve your, um, maybe success at work and that kind of thing? What, what do you think self-compassion can give us outside of anxiety reduction? So unfortunately, we don't have a, a lot of research uh, on the work other than with healthcare providers, right? So healthcare providers are less likely to burn out. Um, we don't have data about like, does your work performance go up? But we do have uh, data for relationships, long-term relationships. And so people were more satisfied with their partners when their partners were more self-compassionate. They described them as being more caring, more loving, less controlling, less angry, 
right? And they were happy, happier in a relationship with the self-compassionate partner. And partly that's because there's a lot of reasons. One, if you, if you meet your own needs, you have more to give to others, but also you're just easier to be around, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, so, you know, we, we influence each other's emotions. When we're around people who are angry and frustrated and stressed, we feel angry and frustrated and stressed because we, we have mirror neurons. We, our brains, you know, we're designed to have empathy with others. We feel other people's emotions, especially those we're close to, you know. And by the way, this happens at a pre-verbal level. So you might, someone might say, oh, I'm fine. But you can tell, you can feel it. You can feel it because your brain is, is evolved to, you know, to feel it. Our brains are designed to feel the emotions of others. And that's one of the ways we can cooperate and care for each other. And so your, your brain is influencing, is picking up other people's emotions and their, their emotions are influencing yours. We are not separate and disconnected. We are interconnected. And so what you cultivate on the inside actually means everyone you interact with is going to help them kind of through the secondary level. So it's, it's not just about ourselves. It's yeah. really about everyone we interact with as well. Before I let you go, um, Dr. Neff, there's something I really want to ask you that comes up again and again. Every time I share an episode, people ask me, they, they say, okay, look, I've gotten to the point where I understand my anxiety. I'm a lot more self-compassionate about my own experience of anxiety, but people in my life who've never experienced it just don't get it. And that's worsening my experience because they're like, just snap out of it. And perhaps, well, this is an, I'm Irish and um, maybe, and it's, we've got a lot of listeners in Britain as well perhaps it's a cultural thing where we just have a stiff upper lip of getting on with it um but people ask me all the time and I struggle to answer for them what if what if there's a complete lack of compassion coming from the people in your life who you need it from most but you have it nailed yourself how do they how do you explain how do you introduce someone to, to being more compassionate to you if you need that support yeah so I mean so first of all the nice thing about self-compassion is you aren't dependent on those other people being compassionate to you it would be lovely but if they can't, they can't, right? Mm -hmm. um, but it does allow you to um, more give you strength to speak up for yourself and ask for what you need. So, for instance, when we look at the, when there's conflicts between what you need and you know partner what they need, you're less likely to subordinate your needs and just kind of you're more likely to be authentic and to speak up to have more of a voice. Um, you know, you you can't shove self compassion down someone else's throat, right? No. Um, you, you can talk about it. You can kind of explain it in a common sense way. You can use the example of, well, would you, would you speak to your child that way? Do you think, it'd be, but maybe they would, I don't know if it's so culturally strong, you know, but you, you can try to explain it. You can point them to the research. Um, you, you can't force someone to be self-compassionate or to necessarily be compassionate to you. Um, and you know, there, there may be some grief involved with that. Yeah. And you may have to give yourself some compassion for that grief, right? Yeah. Um, you know, that, that's, that's the reality of being a human being is there's almost nothing we can control. We can barely control ourselves, let alone control others. We certainly can't control life. We can't control this pandemic, right? Mm -hmm. um, but what we can do is we can open to what is, the reality of what is, with, with great kindness and love, you know, yes. and, and with presence and just taking each moment as it comes and trying to be kind to ourselves and others. Um, and yeah, it, it won't make, it won't totally change the people you interact with and they may, they may be harsh, they may be cruel. But though you don't have to tell them you're practicing self-compassion if it's going to get a negative response. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's something you just do internally. Okay. You know, you just say, okay, well, you know, ow, oh, that hurt. Mm, you know, you kind of hold your hand quietly and you just, you know, you, you, you 
one of the things about self-compassion is, is it does make you more self-sufficient. It's yes. not like we don't have need other people. We do. And of course, it'd be wonderful if they could meet our needs. But they're human beings with their own limitations. But we aren't completely dependent on them. This is another resource, another source of love and care and connection that, again, we have at our fingertips 24-7. We just have to give ourselves permission to call on it. And it's there yeah. for us. And it's free and it's probably the most overlooked tool we have in our resource if you know if you haven't become aware of it. So Dr. Kristen F, thank you so, so much for um, shining a light on this incredibly important um, scientifically backed tool that is there for the taking with, with anxiety and loads of other things in our life that it, you know can only be a positive impact. Um, I really, really appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. I know how incredibly busy you are. And just, if I could just direct people again to your website, if they want more resources, can you just remind me? Yeah, selfcompassion.org. And again, if you Google it, I, I, you'll, I'll come up first, so you'll find me. Amazing. Thank you so much. I've learned an awful lot from you, and I know that my listeners will too. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. The easiest way to access Owning It Real Time is to head to the link in the episode description or episode details, whatever you call them, show notes. You will find the link in there at the top. You can sign up right away for Owning It Real Time and access the full library of 10 situation-specific audio guides that will help you own your anxiety even more than you've ever done before.